Most people do know that they cannot trust the state narrative, but the problem is what can you trust and what can you not trust? How far does the propaganda go? At a time of ubiquitous lies, when telling the truth can cost you your life, is it worth it? There's a biography of the Chinese communist ruler at the time, Jiang Zemin, which mentions that he personally called Changchun that night, essentially demanding consequences for those who were involved. Today I sit down with Peabody award-winning filmmaker Jason Loftus, director of the new film Eternal Spring, the story of a group who managed the unimaginable to hijack China's state TV airwaves with deadly consequences. It was unprecedented in Chinese history for any group to have any intervention in the monopoly of control of media and television inside China. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Jason Loftus, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Pleasure to be here, Jan. Well, Jason, congratulations on an incredible, incredible film, uh, Eternal Spring. Just won the Audience Award at Hot Docs, one of the premier documentary film festivals in the world. And you tackle a little bit of Chinese history that I think a lot of people have never heard of, but it's kind of an event that's unprecedented, I think, in Chinese history, where a group hacks in to the state TV network and broadcasts, I don't know to how many people, maybe you'll tell me, a message breaking through this carpet, entire coverage of, of state propaganda. Mm -hmm. So tell me about this. Yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable story that we were fortunate to come across. And uh, Eternal Spring is an animated documentary that explores uh, the heist of the state TV airwaves by a group of Falun Gong adherents uh, in northeast China in a city called Changchun that were persecuted for their beliefs, but also were facing a sort of barrage of state uh, disinformation about their practice and had tried all kinds of efforts to get the word out, but just felt that they had no real recourse except to take over the state airwaves themselves, kind of climbing poles with essentially home DVD players and trying to tap into the state TV signal. And so it's a remarkable story that was, as you said, unprecedented in Chinese history. and. Um, surprisingly as well, very little known outside of, of China. And I think in part because of the heavy aftermath where individuals who were involved in this were arrested en masse. And, uh, and it's just been very, very difficult to find anyone who was involved to understand what had taken place. And we were just fortunate to come across, I was making a Kung Fu video game a few years ago. And it featured a lot of hand-drawn comic book art. And we learned about this artist, originally from China, who was living in New York. His name is Dashong. And he had drawn for Star Wars comics and Justice League. And uh, he'd also worked with Louis Cha, who is a major kung fu novelist uh, in Chinese. And he, um, he just had the, the amazing illustration skills, but also the cultural background. So we brought him up to Toronto when we were working on this kung fu video game. And uh, in the midst of collaborating with him, we learned his remarkable story of why he had to leave China and uh, how it was connected to this dramatic heist of the state TV airwaves. And we just felt that with his evocative illustration abilities and this really unique story, it, was, it presented a unique opportunity to explore a kind of human rights heist story through animation and through the lens of this artist who was personally connected to the events. It was unprecedented in Chinese history for any group to have any intervention in the monopoly of control of media and television inside China. And so this, this sent a shockwave through, through the Chinese authorities for sure. I mean, there's a biography of uh, the Chinese 
communist ruler at the time, Jiang Zemin, which mentions that he personally called Changchun that night, essentially demanding consequences for those who were involved. Falun Gong practitioners are very, very creative in ways of doing this. It is called clarifying the truth to the populace, so to speak. And, you know, actually you showcase a lot of different methods, I guess, in there. And, um, you know, one in particular, one of the, the, the mastermind, he has this idea where he puts up these helium balloons with banners that say, you know, things like, I guess, Falun Dafa is good or, and so forth. But then when, you, when people try to pop the balloon, there's all these flyers that come out and get scattered everywhere. It seemed like a brilliant idea. But tell me a little bit about these different, different methods and, and, and why the need for all this creativity. Yeah, well, I think it's born out of necessity in the sense that, you know, when the Chinese authorities began to crack down on Falun Gong and Falun Gong, you know, a little bit of background for, for viewers who might not be familiar, Falun Gong was introduced in China in 1992. It has its roots in traditional Chinese practices in the Buddhist school, and it's based on tenets of truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance, and it includes sort of slow-moving yoga-like exercises. Uh, it was part of the sort of Qigong wave that had swept China. But Falun Gong, amidst all the different Qigong practices, became extremely popular. And some estimates say that there were tens of millions, perhaps 100 million people who had been practicing it. Uh, I think at that point, it unnerved some, some leaders in the Communist Party because, for one, it was something that was operating outside of official Communist Party control and also because Falun Gong adhered to these sort of traditional spiritual tenets that were perhaps very prevalent in traditional Chinese culture, but had been largely uprooted by the Communist Party. So I think there was some tension around that. Um, after the ban on Falun Gong, there was this sort of pervasive effort through all Chinese media to denounce the group. And all of a sudden, Falun Gong went from being practiced freely to being something that was evil and dangerous and needed to be uprooted to maintain social order and all of this. And so for those who had practiced Falun Gong and had gained physical and sort of mental and spiritual benefits from it, there were many who still wished to persist in their practice and not to go along with the Chinese government narrative. But because all the channels of communication were essentially controlled by the, the Chinese government, they were forced into sort of samizdat material productions, clandestine operations to kind of distribute flyers at night. And they would spray paint messages, sort of the media is lying to you, Falun Gong is not. All of this is to counter the state narrative, right? And to say, no, we're not what the Chinese government describes us as, right? And so you would see spray-painted messages in public spaces. At the time, they were VCDs, like basically video CD-ROMs, so not exactly high-tech stuff. But they would hand them out person by person. But one of the challenges they ran into is keeping up with the authorities. When the authorities have a monopoly on all channels of communication, and when they've already told everybody that you're evil and dangerous and if you're doing anything uh, to, to propagate Falun Gong's message that you're then against China or against the authorities, um, people may not even give you the time to, to, to state your case. They may not even receive your, your CD. They might be more likely to flag over a cop to, to have you arrested. And so this was this cat and mouse game that was very difficult for these individuals to, to succeed at. And I think that's what led them to say, we need to think bigger. Yeah, we've been creative, we've, but we're constantly in and out of prisons as a result, or labor camps as a result of what we're doing. The cost is really high, and the impact of what we're doing is still, I guess as they felt, limited because of the 
you know, the overwhelming reach of the authorities. And that's what led to this, this grand idea to take over the state airwaves. You know, Liang, who's, yeah, we list him as the mastermind in this kind of high story element, which I think is one of the attractions here is that, yes, it's a human rights story. These are real people. It has a lot of consequences, but there is this kind of Ocean's Eleven kind of crazy, let's pull off a heist. And there are these, clearly these underdogs who are trying to go up against the state. But Liang, prior to this TV hijacking idea, you know, had been involved in a lot of efforts, and those included, you know, this effort to, to raise helium balloons that would carry banners, but also they carried with them flyers at times. Once they were destroyed, flyers may be scattered throughout the city, and it's this kind of, I think it really captured the spirit of this character. I really sensed him as someone who was kind of very cognizant of the dangers he was facing, but oftentimes kind of one step ahead of the authorities, very creative, very out of the box. That's what the witnesses we spoke with uh, described him as. You know, I'm just struck by, uh some of the dialogue that Dashong, uh, things that he mentions, like for example, he said, you know, that he was actually, when he first kind of heard about it, became aware of this, being from the city, he was kind of against it, right? And then there's another character that says, that says I had a kind of moral qualms about doing it because it's actually, it was against the law and I don't like doing that. So tell me a bit about that dimension because this was not, like everybody didn't just suddenly say yes, the word we're, we're going to take over the airwaves. It was some serious deliberation that happened. Sure, and I think that's what's interesting about it is that you know you can see in the midst of a situation where people are trying to determine well what's the right course of action. We have no voice. the The authorities aren't following the law, so should we really follow the law? You can see this kind of thinking, and then you can also see there's understandably a lot of fear and concern. And some people, I think even in Dashong's case, he sympathized with the effort. He definitely wanted to get the message out and to counter the state narrative. But the hammer came down so heavily in the aftermath, you know, thousands of people arrested and, you know, by the estimates of human rights groups as a consequence of this. And so it's easy for people to question, like, was it worth it? Or did we make things worse? And I think that's a valid question. And we wanted to, as, as filmmakers, like, you know, I, I wanted to personally have that out there so that people could see that what are they thinking, how did they think, why are they doing what they're doing, like why are they willing to risk this, what, what does Falun Gong mean to them? It was a unique opportunity for me to bring someone through, to bring an audience through this process of like what, what things were like at every stage, before the crackdown, in the midst of the crackdown, in the midst of this whole heist effort and in the aftermath and to really put yourself into someone else's shoes and, and see what that was, what, what made them tick and why they were doing what they were doing. Let's talk briefly about the Mr. White character, because that, I mean, there's only one of this whole crew that basically got out of China, and most of them were tortured to death or, or something similar. Um, how did he get out? And also, did he feel just like perfectly comfortable talking about this? Yeah. No, those are good questions. So he, he spent quite a few years in, in prison already uh, in, as a result of this. And some of the specifics of what went on there and his kind of how he dealt with the authorities while in prison is something that we cover in the film. But uh, after spending time in prison, I think he did benefit from a couple of things. One is that his, he's an ethnic Korean who was living in the Northeast. Uh, there's sort of a, there are a large Korean community in Changchun in, in Northeast China where this story took place. His mother was living in Korea. She had, and, and there are means for people who are of Korean ethnicity to be able to, to come to Korea and situate there. So I think that helped him. I think also his mom, uh, while he was in prison and being persecuted, she, um, she went to the, to the media in Korea and helped to shine a light on his case. And I think when that happens, it does help to alleviate perhaps some of the treatment that, is, uh, that people are experiencing in these labor camps. After he was 
released, he was able to go to visit his mother and then finally, after some time, be able to permanently situate in Korea. And you say in the film that Auntie Jo, who was, I guess, the kind of mother of the group, you know, took, took care of everybody, make sure they were well fed and so forth, um, she is actually due for release right now or maybe has been released? What, what is the situation with that? Her sentence was a 20-year sentence in 2002, so she is due to be released this year, but we have been unsuccessful in finding any information about her, and this is difficult in China. At times, um, you know, sentences can be extended without real cause or, or much publicity around it, and at the same time as well, people who are released, if they're still a, a concern of the authorities, they may be under some type of house arrest or limited ability to communicate, or they may just have gone through so much that they're, you know, shattered in, in the result of that and are, and are uh, sort of living a life of isolation for those reasons as well. So we have, we're not able at this point so far to determine where she's at, but that is something that we are going to be looking at this year to see if we can identify where she is and hopefully that the film can shine a light on her situation mm -hmm. and be of some help in that regard. So, you know, what is, what is the reality of this persecution in China? I mean, the, here's the thing, right? It's very difficult for a lot of people to just kind of fathom why this would happen and like the scale of it and that, you know, what you just described is could even be a reality, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it continues, unfortunately. And I think this is kind of, um, it's a bit of a consequence of the fact that there's always another tragedy going on in the world. And so our attention continues to shift and we, we focus on one thing and another thing and so we move on to something else. People have heard a lot more recently about the internment of the Uyghurs, which might you know, be many people in Northwest China. I've heard estimates in the millions of people who've been detained and also coerced to abandon their beliefs and, and mistreated in other ways. Um, you know, we've witnessed more prominently the erosion of freedoms in Hong Kong uh, that have played out, especially uh, during COVID, which has really accelerated the, the deterioration of the situation in Hong Kong. But um, we haven't heard much about Falun Gong for some time. And as a result of that, some people might think that, okay, well, maybe Falun Gong is a less prominent issue or it's, it's not happening anymore. But the reality is we're meeting these people. Like I mentioned, there's people who are still in prison or we still have been unable to find information about them today for events that took place 20 years ago. There are still people who are being detained and arrested and persecuted today. I mean, there was a big push in the lead up to the, uh, to the Olympics where more people mm -hmm. were detained who were potentially, uh, the, the authorities were concerned that they might protest or make a scene or draw attention to the, to the persecution that was ongoing. And so they were detained sort of preemptively out of concern. And so this is continuing to happen today. There are many, many people still in labor camps and detention centers in China who are being persecuted for their belief in Falun Gong. Some of the tactics that we've seen that have been happening with Falun Gong over a couple of decades are things that are we now see applied to other groups. So right. in terms of this mass internment and you know, and the coercion tactics to abandon their beliefs, we see the same things reflected with the Uyghur community. Um, you know, the credible reports of organ harvesting that we've seen against Falun Gong have also been reported against the Uyghurs and other minority groups in China. So we see echoes of it in other aspects, um, but also the persecution of Falun Gong itself still continues today. Well, you know, in I had uh, the vice commissioner of USER for the U.S. Commission on International and Religious Freedom on the show not too long ago, and he was talking about exactly this. You know, that there's kind of a blind eye uh, put to the this, the organ harvesting when you know there were credible allegations of it against the Falun Gong practitioners, and then later it became something that was appears to have been implemented against the Uyghur population, and it just reminds me of this. Um, 
you know, this idea that when you kind of turn a when you turn a blind eye, the next problem is just down down the horizon, right? You know, one of the representatives from Human Rights Watch who was moderating the Q and A last night, uh, Yacho, I believe her name is. Uh, I saw a tweet from her where she mentioned, you know, many Westerners were concerned all of a sudden about China now because Shanghai was in very severe lockdowns. And it's like, oh no, Shanghai, this beautiful city we used to enjoy, you know, a place of commerce, glitzy, all this stuff. And, uh, you know, the sentiment that I understood she was expressing is, well, if you've been paying attention, the same types of, you know, the lack of freedom that you're now witnessing in Shanghai has been prevalent throughout China just in the places that you don't go to when you're, when you're there to do business and things like this. It's not a new thing. And we've ignored it for some time, and then all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, it's, it's affecting some, you know, our personal interests. But it was there all along. Well, no, and it's interesting, because I, I was thinking about that, too, that, you know, how does this lockdown situation, I mean, hundreds of millions, right, in, in these big cities in China, how is it informed by what we saw here? Right, and you've, I guess you've begun to talk about that now. You know, you know there was an interesting point that Dashong made in our, Dashong is the artist character who's in our film, and uh, he made a point last night in the Q&A. He sees the, the whole lockdowns and the excessiveness of it uh, as a sort of continual effort on the part of the Chinese Communist Party to really break the spirit of the Chinese people. Mm. You know, and I think that that you could see as a theme throughout all of the mistreatment. It's essentially a, a bully tactic of just repressing people and, until they no longer dare to stand up anymore. And I think the Chinese people have been through so much. And that's also what makes this story of the TV hijacking um, so remarkable, is that the consequences were so severe, you know, and yet these people still felt the need uh, to speak up. And that's what made me curious. Well, why would someone be willing to risk their freedom, their well-being, even their lives potentially just to counter a state narrative about them. Like, what fuels that? Something about the way the film was made is very kind of magical because, you know, he says at the beginning, Dashong, that this is a shared memory that he's creating with his pen. So he's going to the people and as they're telling their story, he's drawing and they're seeing what he's drawing and they're moved by it. Mm -hmm. And there's this, you know, incredible scene that you animate. Uh, of of his childhood in Changchun. I mean, it's just I get shivers up my spine just thinking about because he's such a brilliant artist. Uh, 
小朋友之间呢，亲人之间的那种，那种非常温暖的感觉。And he's showing it to Mr. White, right? And Mr. White is now remembering. All these memories come flooding back, right? So, so the film is based on a shared memory, but the film is about. Creating it's the, the the creation of that shared memory is depicted as it, as it happens in the film. It's just an amazing idea. Where did that come from? A little bit meta, right? So, <laughs> so, you know, that was something that really struck me is that there have been other documentaries that have used animation very well. I'm not sure if people consider Waltz with Bashir to be documentary or biography. There's debates about some of these forms when you know.、Um, but there have been a number of films. I enjoyed Tower a few years ago when I caught that at Hot Docs in Toronto and. Uh, so animation is not new in the documentary space, but there was something really unique about this, which is that the animation isn't just purely an invisible decision at the hands of the filmmaker, who's like, I think this is a great way to, you know, stylistic way to depict some reenactments.、Uh, it was intimately part of the storytelling because we're pulling the curtain back, and you can see the creator. Uh, creating, and you can also see how his own experiences are colored with his nostalgia, with his sense of loss, with his with his trauma, right? And in that way, it does two things. I think one is that it reminds us throughout the film, because we have about a third of the film that's live action, is that it continually reminds us that these are real people, and that this is a real story. And I felt I felt in a documentary sense that that. Like grounding it in reality was really important、uh, in in order to establish that part of it and to see on the characters' faces how they experienced all this. But I think the other thing that it does too is that it it kind of makes art a character in the film as well, where we can see the artistic process and how art can be used to help generate understanding,、um, hopefully in some sense healing and catharsis as well, and and we can understand as well. Perhaps even though art is subjective and animation is subjective by its nature, we can see it more objectively because we know the artist and we know why he's drawing what he's drawing and we understand his lens that we're seeing it through. So it's just those things really excited me from a filmmaking perspective that it was a unique opportunity in this film to go places that documentary haven't hasn't gone before. Absolutely unique to anything that I've seen.、Um, well, and so let's go back to the other that other question. So why will people? Risk all. I mean, effectively, and they really did.、Um, yeah. You know, it's funny because so there's this. The name of the city、uh, struck a chord with me. It's like when you're making a film, you interview a lot of people, you do a lot of research, and obviously this involved the artistic aspect as well. So you're making concepts, you're kind of experimenting with things. There's so many ideas there, and then certain things stick with you, and they sort of just. Show themselves as being elements of the film, but one of the interesting things that hit me was just the name of the of the city, which is in, if you translate Changchun literally in English,、uh, you can translate it as Eternal Spring, and I'm kind of giving something away, but that's that's where we drew the inspiration for the name of the film. And what hit me was this: the name of the city resonated with some of the the sort of, I guess the the character of the witnesses and the people involved that I was. That I was sort of interpreting as I was interviewing people, and that's that, you know, despite all that they went through, all of this loss and all of this suffering and everything that they risked, they still had this sense of hope. It wasn't like, well, we tried, but we didn't end up like overthrowing the government, and we didn't end up surviving in some cases. So it was all for naught. It didn't feel like that. There was still this really present sense of hope, and that to me was a big question. Like, well, where does that come from, and why do they still sense that? And then 
you know, digging into it more, you see that the narrative is so important in, in the campaign against Falun Gong. And this is true with atrocities everywhere. Like we don't have one country, you know, just coming in and invading another country if there not, aren't a lot of people that think that this is the right thing. They buy into a certain narrative. And you don't see widespread human rights abuses against a certain ethnic minority or some other group unless people have bought into this narrative that these people are an other that is less than or is somehow worthy of the mistreatment that they're facing. And so narrative is so important in justifying abuses and atrocities. And so even though individually these people may have suffered massive consequences, at the same time, the people who witnessed this broadcast, you know, in estimates, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe more people tuned in to see this, they can never watch the state-run propaganda the same way. Mm -hmm. And they may be less likely to participate or go along with the campaign, even if they don't necessarily have the same courage to speak out overtly against it they may not uh, participate in the same way. And so that can have a massive impact in the overall human rights situation with Falun Gong and with others. But I found this captured in them. There's a symbology in, in that's used in Chinese poetry, the, the plum blossom flower. It's called in Chinese Mei Hua. And the idea with this flower is that it blooms in the winter when it's still cold and the conditions are harsh. So when you see it in Chinese poetry, it's often used to depict sort of strength and perseverance in the midst of suffering or some element of hope of something better in the future. And so when I see when I see what these individuals went through, I see this kind of even though the conditions are still harsh, even in the aftermath of this TV hijacking, the the persecution continues and people continue to be killed and imprisoned and tortured. Um, there is this sort of like small sign, you know, this small little flower that blooms, it, that gives some hope to people for a better future where, where you know, Falun Gong can be regarded not with hate and, and from the perspective of misinformation, but with a better understanding and, and tolerance, right? And so I think that, that that message was important and we kind of depicted that. You can see um, with the motifs that are in the film, but I also really thought it's so interesting that it connects with the name of the, of the city. And I mean, there's other layers to the whole spring aspect as well when you think of like uh, you know a Prague spring or an Arab spring and a spring in a sense of like a movement for freedom and, and this kind of thing and so this kind of eternal spring is also this layer of uh, it, it kind of connotes this perseverance to just continue uh, regardless of the consequences to to persist in trying to to counter this this persecution. So for a lot of people that live in free societies right they may wonder don't people know that it's all propaganda? Like, for example, there's, you know, people are all getting together, or many of them get together to watch the evening news. In fact, the hijackers wanted to specifically broadcast at that time because they knew there would be a lot of people watching. Why are people sitting down with their families uh, watching every night what they should know is state propaganda? I think that's something that we can think with the benefit of distance. You know, when we look at another society that is a closed society and where they have no access to information beyond what the, the authorities uh, approve, then there's this distance and you can easily decipher that certain things, so that just doesn't make sense. But when you're in it, it's very, very difficult. You know, mm -hmm. people, most people do know that they cannot trust the state narrative, but the problem is what can you trust and what can you not trust? How far does the propaganda go? And very few people um, are able to be exposed to the full extent of what is possible within uh, you know, state media that essentially can manufacture information and control the narrative. 
Uh, the last film that I made, which actually proceeded sort of in the middle of making this Eternal Spring film, Eternal Spring took you know, five plus years because of all the animation, the small size of our team to be able to do it. But in the midst of that, I made another related film that was called Ask No Questions. We hear it all the time, fake news. But I met a man who would challenge my notion of how far a fabrication could go. Hey, Lao Chen,我对着电视机一天八个小时强逼我而且一定要我睁开眼睛我当然都不睁了攻击了二十二天五名法轮功痴迷者在天安门广场制造了一起自焚的惨案我是搞电视的那么当时我看的时候我就觉得呢是假的
is the truth was very difficult to get at. Mm -hmm. Like it's very, very difficult to determine what is true and what is not. And I think this is part of how propaganda works is that propaganda doesn't need to be irrefutable. It just needs to muddy the waters enough that you can't determine exactly what's going on and that you can hopefully you know, cloud an impression of, of a group that maybe it's not worth your sympathies, maybe it's not worth sticking your neck out for. And if they can achieve that, that's enough. They don't mind that you know that you can't trust the state media, but as long as you don't know what's really going on. And so I think for a lot of people coming out of China, I'll give you an example. My wife and filmmaking partner, Masha Loftus, she comes from the hometown of the, uh, of the artist Dashong and where this story took place in Changchun. But Masha is the, the daughter of sort of a mid-level government official in China and had no connection with the Falun Gong community. She didn't know, you know any of this that had happened, so it shocked her. But also, when she came out of China, she didn't know about Tank Man. They were taught to memorize the names of these heroic soldiers who had defended the country against uh, you know, some you know, insurrection, essentially, some effort to overthrow things. And, and so they were, this is what they were taught. They had no idea what really took place in Tiananmen Square. And many other things, they just simply had, had no clue. So when they, when they were able to come overseas, uh, where Masha, my wife Masha was, she was able to at least compare information that she had access to and make her own decisions. But for people in China, even very intelligent, highly educated people, um, when they don't have that ability, it's very, very hard to judge them and say, well, how come you don't know, right? Because they may not trust everything, but are you going to distrust all of it? Where do, you have to have some basis on which to plant your feet to understand the world. Right. Well, you know, and a as you talk about this, you know, I'm thinking about this information storm perhaps that Elon Musk recently created uh, when he tweeted about knowing the falsity of what's been called the Trump-Russia collusion, right? Elon Musk with all of the probably the best private intelligence I would imagine because he's interested in lots of things guy, he had only heard about this last month. So I mean even in a country like the US which has you know free, freedom of information this this these, these types of questions are meaningful, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's that quote that's attributed to Voltaire, although I think it's probably more an expression of his sentiments rather than something he actually said, but this idea that, um, you know, I may not agree with what you have to say, but I'll defend to the death your, your right to say it. I think it's important. It's not just a message about, uh, you know, hey, I should be tolerant of other opinions. I think it's much, much bigger than that. It's fundamental to a functioning society. So in that sense, you know, I may look through, I'm not as familiar with the, you know, the events that you're describing, and I may look into those and feel the same way. I may look into them and, and have different opinions as well. But the point is the ability to have access to different viewpoints. That's the only way things move forward. So when we have this conversation around, we need to crack down on misinformation or disinformation. The part that worries me is that, you know, and I've spent now working, worked on two films where disinformation has been used to fuel atrocious human rights abuses. Like we're talking deaths and, and you know, imprisonment and torture and all of these things built on the back of disinformation. But for me, the disinformation isn't the part that I'm most concerned about. It's actually the absence of the ability to challenge the prevailing narrative. Because if they were able to have a conversation to say, well, no, this is not who we are, and there's an ability to, to air that out and people can consider different viewpoints, then, the, then these, those dangerous ideas don't take hold. So for me, I do understand that you know, disinformation has consequences, but I'm not worried about the sort of dark alleys of the internet where people are you know, absorbing conspiracy theories as much as I am. You know, 
anything that resembles what we see in authoritarian countries where these levers of what is allowed as information and what is not allowed uh, take hold. Because even if those come about through good intentions, um, once they're in place, the real bad actors don't search for the, the dark corners of the internet to influ influence a small number of people. They go for the levers of power where they can control what can be said and what can't be said. So that to me is a bigger concern. And I think in the spirit of Voltaire, you know, I think it's important that we be able to hear contrary opinions and to really be able to talk them through and to trust people. I think it comes from education and I think it, you have to trust people in general to make their own decisions and to debate these things out openly to be able to see where the truth lies. As you're talking, I can't help think about, you know, this most, I, I guess it would be like a most insidious use of disinformation where, you know, I'm thinking of the character Mr. White, he's basically told, go and convince this other practitioner that, you know, he was wrong, that, that he needs to recant, that he needs to reform himself, right? because he had, under duress, he says, he kind of signed a statement saying he wouldn't practice anymore. So now he's expected to mm -hmm. enforce that disinformation on another, mm -hmm. right? So this is, I mean, this for a lot of people might seem like a bizarre thing to be doing. Mm -hmm. What is this all about? I mean, what I look at that is, I think the authorities know that fundamentally they can't change people's minds and beliefs through coercion. But what they can achieve is people's willingness to go along with the party. If the, if the threats are, are severe enough and, um, you know, and the, the pain and the suffering is, is extreme enough, then people start to abandon their own sense of what they think is right. And, and in so doing then, they will comply with the authorities and what they want to, uh, the narrative to be. And so obviously when you're coercing someone to abandon their beliefs and then getting them to try to convince other people, it's not through an open debate of ideas. It's through threats and intimidation, right? And that's to me though, what is really remarkable about the characters in this film. And you're referring to Liang Jinxing, who's a mastermind of the, of the TV hijacking and the efforts not just by the authorities, but by um, a fellow adherents, fellow practitioners of Falun Gong who were persecuted to the extent that they couldn't uh, sustain their abuses and, and then became sort of accomplices, at least for a period of time, with the authorities to try and convert him. So when you think that someone's gone through all of this and yet they still persist, that's just, it, it, you almost ask like, well, why would someone go through all of this, right? But when you see how fundamental um, you know, it is to any society to be able to speak the truth and to have people like that who no matter what you do, they're still willing to speak the truth in the face of injustice. It's so important. You know, as I was making this film, and I mentioned I made two films at the same time, there was a quote from um, the Gulag Archipelago that was just sort of in my mind as I was making it. It's a, I'm probably not gonna get it exactly right, but this idea of like the simple act of a courageous individual is to not participate in the lie. Mm -hmm. and one word of truth outweighs the world. It's kind of a, a double-barreled quote, and I felt that looking at the first film, Ask No Questions, it was really about you know, Chen Rei Chang's unwillingness to comply with the authorities, to not go along with a lie that he knew to be a lie, right? And there's something really remarkable in that. But going one step further, and one word of truth outweighs the world, just makes, I think it really hits home when you see the impact 
that these individuals, just by you know less than an hour of interrupting the state television broadcast, the, the impact that that can have, not only on the people who witness that immediate broadcast, but the inspiration that it serves for so many other people who've continued after them. You can see that in the Mr. White character without spoiling too much, you know, his interactions with Leong and his steadfastness and what that meant for him and how that inspired him going forward. And so it kind of creates this endless wave where, you know, maybe you're facing very severe consequences and if you look just from an individual perspective and make a calculation, well, if I speak out and say what I know is right, and the consequences are this, where am I going to end up? And if you look at that calculation from an individual perspective, I think it's very understandable that a lot of people will say it's not worth the cost. But if you're able to look beyond yourself and see the impact that you can have by speaking up and how that can inspire other people to do the same and, and what that ultimately means projected forward for society, then you see how important that is. Your wife is Chinese, presumably has family in China. You, you have family in China. Hmm. Um, are you, aren't you concerned that... Yeah, so I mentioned at the outset that I came across Dashong while we were making a, a Kung Fu video game. And a, a little more on that is that um, the game was called Shu Yan Saga. It was, it was to be published by Tencent, which is a major media company in China and huge player in the gaming space internationally. And just as we were in the midst of our launch, we were also, I was also working on these two films. And we had done a number of interviews, and I suppose people knew more or less what we were up to with these projects. And uh, before I know it, uh, the, the, our game disappears from storefronts just in the midst of the launch. And when I finally reach our rep over at Tencent, I'm told that the Chinese government had contacted them. And even though the game had already been approved uh, through the censorship office at two different ministries of the Chinese government, the authorities had told Tencent they had to cut ties with my company, and Tencent immediately obliged. And uh, I was told, uh, are you perhaps doing something not aligned with the Chinese government direction in those communications? And at the same time, my wife's family members who are in Northeast China, they started uh, receiving calls from the Public Security Bureau in China saying, we know what you're up to overseas, a kind of sort of veiled threat, I would imagine. Um, and. So it's easy to look at these things and say, as I mentioned, like from an individual perspective, is the cost worth it? But then you realize that that's the same calculation that has been happening with so many people who haven't looked at these stories for a very long time. And if we all continue in that same vein, then where does that lead us, right? And I think for me, the thing was having spent the time that I spent with these individuals who had risked much more than I was facing and had endured much more and who still wanted to tell their stories, I couldn't bring myself to, to not carry on and tell their stories and let people see them. So uh, I think it's important. I think the film's going to become massive. Um, just, you know, it's a compelling story. It's beautifully done. Um, will, will that create more of a danger? I guess that's the question, right? Well, it's a good question, but you know, there's something that I learned from these witnesses. So when you speak with these film subjects, you know, as a filmmaker, you always need to be cognizant of the potential harm to your subjects. And that's something that you need to think through. And so this question would come up when they come out of China. Are you sure that you want to tell this story? And what parts are you comfortable with telling? And what parts are you not comfortable with telling? And the sort of repeated theme that I gleaned from these subjects is that the best recourse they have is to, is to expose what they've been through. Well, first of all, they want to. They've gone through so much to be able to persist in what 
they believe that they want to tell their story. So there's that. But they also believe, practically speaking, that the best way to protect themselves and protect others is to shine a light on what they're doing. And I understood that. So when, when I, with the interference that we mentioned in terms of the authorities going after business contacts and family members in China, in the spirit of what I was seeing from these witnesses who were coming out of China, I thought, okay, well, if I do, I think to a certain extent, the Chinese government is trying to see how you will react. So if they put pressure on family or business, does that get you to silence? Because if it does, then they can do more of that and they know that they'll get you to behave how they, how they want you to behave. But if you flip the script and say, okay, whatever they're going to do to me, then I'm going to let people know about it. So I recorded that call with my business contact at Tencent. I, incorpor I incorporated it in the last film I made, Ask No Questions, and, and I wrote a, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about both cases with the family interference and such, and specifically pointed at WeChat, which is owned by Tencent, saying I believed that uh, the contacts, both family and business, were, were likely taken from my wife's uh, WeChat account, and so there was some complicity there as well. So, you know, in the aftermath of doing that, interestingly, the same tactics haven't persisted during the release of the second film, and I think that there's, no, there's never a guarantee. Certainly, I, I would imagine that we've struck a chord with the Chinese authorities and they won't be happy about what we're doing. I've, I'm fully aware and, uh, you know, and I'm aware of the, of the risks around that. But I also feel, um, you know, if their goal is to silence you through intimidation and anything that they do to intimidate you essentially becomes information that you share with the world, it kind of removes that motivation for them to, to try those things in the first place. Jason, it just occurred to me that, you know, through doing this film and your other one, you're doing the same thing that the hijackers did, actually. Well, right? I, I, I appreciate that um, because I, I have a lot of admiration and respect for those individuals. I don't put myself in anything that I'm sacrificing or facing in, in the same ballpark, but I do hope to, to do service. You know, as a filmmaker, when you're fortunate enough to come across a story that really stirs you to the, to the core, you just want to do justice to that story so that other people can witness it and experience the same thing that you have. And if other people can watch this film and, and feel that same connection, then I feel, you know, I've, I've, I've done what I can, yeah. This is an incredibly unique film. Uh, I've never seen anything quite like it. I mean, what, what were the challenges that you found in kind of putting something like this together? You know, from a production standpoint, um, the combination of sort of live action documentary and animation presented a unique opportunity, but also a very unique challenge. Typically, when you're shooting a documentary, you'll just go out, you might shoot 100 hours of footage, and then you sit there in the editing suite and you figure out the story. It kind of comes to you as you start carving something up. And animation is the opposite process because you need to, you, you do all your storyboards, you build a sort of uh, like a little film out of storyboards, like an animatic or a Leica reel, you lock every shot down before you begin to do animation because animation is very time consuming and expensive. And so when you're taking these two processes and they're kind of opposites and you're doing them at the same time, it can present a lot of challenges. And people might think, well, you just cut the whole film first and then you added all the animation later, but you can see in the film that the character is sharing pieces of what he's already been working on with people as we're doing it. And it was very much that process and partly by necessity because of the, the limited resources and manpower that we had, it stretched over a prolonged period of time to make the film. And so it's this kind of unique challenge. But it, it, uh, sometimes it's a leap of faith. You're making scenes, you know they're gonna somehow be in the film, you don't exactly know how it's all gonna tie together and you're kind of doing both processes at the same time. 
So that was a unique challenge. But I think as a result of it, there's also something very unique about this film where we are legitimately pulling the curtain back and allowing people to come in and out of the live action world, seeing the artist and seeing the characters who are directly affected by the story and being brought into this very rich, evocative 3D world with all of these you know, 2D illustrations. And actually on the artistic standpoint from this kind of 2D, 3D blend is also something interesting. Um, you can see that when you watch the film, because of how the camera moves, that there's clearly a 3D perspective to it. Um, but all of the aesthetic is a very 2D illustration. And so this was something we wanted to achieve. We wanted the depth and, and the ability to travel in a 3D space and to feel present in the environment. But we wanted to maintain Dashong's real character in his illustrations, and he's a 2D artist. So what we did is we would take a scene we would flesh out a story that we want to tell in this scene and Dashong would storyboard it. So he would draw panels that would basically, okay, here's this, here's how the scene's going to shape up. And we would take those and our animation director, David St. Amand, would build this in a 3D space, essentially just with boxes. So we were building it in 3D animation software. And in that software, we would have cameras where we would take pictures from different perspectives and we would print out these images on sort of large drawings and they're just essentially boxes and we would say okay, go to work Dashong and Dashong would draw all of the detail on these boxes from different angles and then what we would do is we would scan those illustrations and put them back into the software and so that way as the camera moved around because we had captured different perspectives you can see all of the different surfaces and faces of objects and such that have Dashong's illustrations on them you know from different angles and we took that even further so in some cases with the you know, with the uh, the taxi cabs that you see and the, the street car, the trolley, you can even see the markers uh, because it was hand colored as well. So he hand drew these things and then he colored them and we just draped those those things right onto the 3D objects. So you get that 3D perspective by, while maintaining the, the real hand drawn and even hand colored aesthetic. And so I remember uh, the other night we were speaking with David St. Amat, uh, your animation director, and he mentioned that what for me was the most hauntingly beautiful scene of the film was actually one of the first things he did, you know, to your point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was like that. We wanted to, so there's this challenge. When you're doing documentary, you always want a sort of a distance from your subject. You want them to share their story with you, in the case of Dashong. But it, the challenge as well is that Dashong is also a participant in the production process, right? He's He's part of the creative team. He's their lead, uh, you know, concept artist, storyboard artist, and illustrator, right? So how do you manage this? And so one of the things was in the early stages, we just wanted to see what Dashong was feeling, right? So it's just just draw what you feel, just draw. And we weren't very specific about about you know here's here's a scene that we want to have in the film. We didn't begin with that. Mm. And so this is where you get those scenes with him running from his own paintbrush you know, marks and, and this kind of, you can see how he's haunted by his, by his memories, by, um, you know, by the trauma that he had endured. And also you contrast that with this early scene about his childhood memories, you know, and what the city of Changchun meant to him and the nostalgia and the loss that he feels around that. And that really, he built that up. He describes Changchun as like a fairy tale world for children. That's what, that's how he remembered it. Mm -hmm. He was kind of oblivious to the sort of uh, political repercussions that even his family was enduring at different times because that he was a child, right? And this is how he remembered it and experienced it. So those are scenes, uh, and there's a couple of others where it really just comes out of Dachon, right? And then what we do is when we're interviewing all these other subjects, as a filmmaker, I'm piecing the rest, I'm piecing the story together and also figuring out how to tell this story so that an audience can go on this journey. And then there's a bit of distance. So Dachon, 
he's entrusted us with his art. He's entrusted us with his own personal story. And then he trusts us to step back and let us tell that story so that legitimately he's a subject in the film, right? And he didn't see the film until we had our Dutch premiere in the Netherlands and he came with me to Movies That Matter. And uh, I think there were five shows that they, they ran in the, in the Netherlands, four of them in The Hague and one remote city in the north of the country. And Dashong said the first time he saw the film, he didn't remember anything because he was just so <laughs> nervous and, you know, and, and just taking it all in. But I, I caught up with him after the second, third screening, and he, fortunately he was really in, enjoying it and I think was happy that he had uh, entrusted us with that. So he's seeing the response. You know, in the Netherlands, we, had, um, we were the activist night film, and the uh, Secretary General of Foreign Affairs uh, from, from the Netherlands was in, in attendance and gave a, a wonderful speech speaking about Dashong, comparing him to the you know, the tank man that we see in Tiananmen Square and these sort of iconic figures in the struggle for freedom and just a massive standing ovation. And then country after country now, you know, a double winner in Thessaloniki, two awards at Hot Docs. He's just, I feel happy. Obviously, as a filmmaker, you, you, you love the recognition and, and the awards, but, you know, Dashong really took a leap of faith with us, you know, in sharing these pieces with us and then just allowing us to make the film. And so to see him enjoy the film and then be able to see how the audience reacts to his story, to his art, to all of this is very, very rewarding. So how can people see the film? Yeah, so as we're speaking, I think we're just finishing up here at Human Rights Watch in New York. Uh, and next up, we're hitting a, a half dozen festivals across the US over the next four weeks. People can see those screening dates um, on our website. Uh, one of the ones that's coming up immediately is in San Francisco, where the opening night film at San Francisco Documentary Festival, and uh, people can also stream the film through that festival. But there are more, so if you're in uh, different parts of the country, we're in Mammoth Lakes, we're in New Jersey, uh, at Lighthouse International Film Festival, um, we're in different places, so check that out, and uh, would love to see people out. We're gonna try and attend a number of the Q&As ourselves as well. We'll be in Hollywood, uh, Dances with Films, playing at the Chinese theaters in, in Hollywood, so uh, would love to see people out. And the website? Eternalspringfilm.com.当时在那个插播之后他们跟着我所以我觉得我觉得也是我们该离开的时候我们唯一的诉求就是要通过一种方式讲述一种真相人其迫害大家谁也不说话他杀人放火了那你是人吗当我画的时候呢，其实我作为一个专业的从业人员的时候，我并不难。但是当我在体会当时那种带我带回那种回忆的时候呢，我有一种很沉重的被压抑的感觉。
Jason Loftus, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Jan. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you all for joining Jason Loftus and me for this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kalik. The Epoch Times is growing quickly, and we're currently hiring an associate producer to join the Epoch TV team to work on both American Thought Leaders and Cash's Corner. It's a time of rampant misinformation and propaganda, and you'll be part of the solution as we bring back honest journalism. If you're interested or you know someone who might be a good fit, head over to ept.ms slash associate producer. That's ept.ms slash associate producer, all one word. We look forward to hearing from you.